Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where we look at the technology driving the energy transition, and we look at this week's issue of Rethink Energy. I'm Peter White, and as usual, I'm joined by our hydrogen and wind analyst, Harry Morgan. Hello. <coughs> Harry may still be a bit groggy, uh, as he's getting over a bout of COVID, so forgive him for that. And now solar specialist, Andreas Wontanar. Hello there. Uh, coming live from Australia and, of course, our publisher, Simon Thompson. Good morning, Peter. All right. On the show today, we're going to be asking, can Europe engineer a renaissance in solar? Uh, with three of our stories this week focusing on some aspects of such a resurgence. We'll ask if a new type of electrolyzer really can bring down the price of hydrogen to what I think uh, is 85 cents a kilogram. And we'll see... What we think about Chevron's latest investment in carbon capture. Not a lot, I should think. Uh, And finally, we'll ask our publisher what has caught his eye in the issue. So first off, uh, next Wednesday, I believe, and we'll cover it in in the next issue, uh, the European Union is going to announce um, uh, all of its plans for getting off of um, renewable, uh, for getting off Russian um, oil and gas. Um, And a lot of that has been... uh, accelerating investment in um, in uh, renewables um, solar and wind in particular one letter that's been uh, not leaked but obviously is trying to influence this policy comes from five european energy ministers and it was sent to the european commission uh, it calls for a renaissance in solar manufacturing in europe basically uh, the same type of moves which we've seen coming from the Biden administration on the Solar Energy Manufacturing for America plan. Invest in manufacturing and accelerate permitting and get um, solar onto 70 million rooftops by 2030 and make this part of the Repower EU plan, which is um, the plan to uh, coming out next week for the Russian oil and gas. Uh, the target will be 1.1 terawatts of photovoltaics in Europe by 2030. Andres, I, I had a rough calculation using your numbers and it looked like uh, that's three times what we're, we've been expecting. And we've been expecting solar to go up fairly dramatically. Yeah, this is something that means if, if they do this, it will mean that you'll have to double or triple even an optimistic prediction from before uh, the war. And actually something that I was looking at just before this call on an unrelated matter was uh, Poland. And I I noticed Poland uh, last year was 88% rooftop and it was quite a a big installation. It was uh, 3.7 gigawatts, almost as big as Germany. And in the first quarter of this year, it's installed in Poland one gigawatt of rooftop solar just in three months, along with another 700 megawatts of utility scale. Well, that's something that we've seen already in in the European Commission's draft plans, is that they're they're planning to uh, mandate that rooftop solar will have to be included in all new buildings across across Europe. Um, So obviously that's going to be something that really really drives installations there. We've already seen several states in Germany, as I wrote about this week, um, that have already made that mandatory. They've seen installation rise by around 10% in just a matter of months. So if that's mandated within the EU's um, strategy, then a lot of this thousand gigawatts that they'd want to see by 2030 would be would be um uh yeah would probably come from the rooftop sector i mean that's something that we've written about this week in terms of germany and seeing that almost one in six new households have a rooftop pv system planned um, for installation and germany was has been chugging along for years just installing around four or five gigawatts per year 
And I think earlier, after this war started, we heard that they were considering 20 gigawatts a year. Or maybe it was when the Green Coalition government came in, they started saying 20 gigawatts a year. Now, to get 1,100 gigawatts in nine years, you need, what, 240? No, that I can't do maths anymore, apparently. You'd need... <laughs> oh, that's really hard, actually. <laughs> you can't do it in your head. Yeah, 100, when, you'd, you'd, you'd need 120 gigawatts or so per year from all of... So, yeah, uh, 20 gigawatts per year from Germany. Maybe that wouldn't be quite enough. They'd have to uh, ramp it up to 30 gigawatts. At least it doesn't look like, you know, yet um, we're about to do a, a Biden, which is um, plan the entire future on solar and then stop any solar arriving in the country without tariffs. You know, at least th that tariffs haven't been mentioned in any plan I've heard on Europe so far. Do you think this is plausible? Do you think this is plausible given the time frame? That that's a huge target of one terawatt in only eight years. Uh, you know, it seems like a, a snap of a finger. So, is is this plausible? Not at all. Absolutely not at all. Not <laughs> not if it, not if it it wants to make all of that solar as well. I mean, it's talking about making um, seventy percent uh, of all the solar. That it installs. I don't think that's feasible. Can it install 1.1 terawatts? Yes. Will it mostly be Chinese panels? Yes. Will there be a resurgence in European manufacturing? Probably some resurgence. Will it be anything like what we plan? No. And that's, I'm only taking 40 years of following European manufacturing into account. Overseas companies undercut us and um, we end up raising tariffs to stop them coming in and to protect European manufacturing jobs. We're useless at it, and investors in Europe are useless at taking the weight of investment away from governments. Not even with subsidy, subsidies and, and tax incentives? You, you don't think that would be able I, to? I think that's great at the beginning. I think that will work, you know, and, and uh, I think some manufacturing companies in some of the, the southern and eastern states of uh, Europe will definitely do that, and they'll build factories, and they'll, we've got the internal technology, the know-how of how to make it and make fairly efficient panels. It's, it's when it comes down to that learning curve, going global, uh, exporting, some of the uh, assets. The only two industries that have ever done that in Europe are financial services and oil. Um, you know, we've we've become global in oil from a number of uh, places in Europe, and we've become global in financial services, but not in manufacturing. Some German companies have achieved that, and and this will walk. This looks threatens to be a German mostly activity, although I've, I think we've covered later in the issue um, a new French uh, uh, initiative um, in one of the short items. You know, apart from cars, you know, what what else do we make in Europe that that we consume? Is uh, and and that's and that's all because governments subsidised heavily uh, in in defiance of WTO rules. Um, the manufacture of cars in all their all their countries, apart from the UK, where we failed to to subsidise it and lost our car industry. So, Andres, will we be changing our forecast on this on this kind of declaration from? Yeah, I think so because you need energy and it's got to come from somewhere. So it, there's not really there's a limited number of alternatives. And uh, who who wrote the piece on? Uh, Europeans being driven into solar plus battery by the power prices because I remember I think it was it was probably 
in in like September 2021 that the Europe that Europe's electricity price went up to what 300 euros per megawatt hour or, or something very high and I, and in this piece it says it's even higher it's now it's, yeah so so yeah I wrote this piece and when, when we're talking about wholesale electricity prices yeah we're talking around sort of 90 to 100 um, euros per megawatt hour but when we're looking at retail prices in Germany we, we've historically been used to around 300 euros per megawatt hour and currently we're sitting at prices almost at 450. And at that point, the cost of installing and maintaining a rooftop solar system and a battery storage system at your at your home, regardless of what uh, chemistry you're using in terms of the battery, you're going to get a really good payback period in terms of how quickly you offset that capital cost by the savings you make compared to buying electricity from the grid. Because of that, th th we're really, really anticipating a massive uptick in sales. We've been doing quite a lot of research recently around what this payback period needs to be in order to see a, a massive uh, ramp up in installation rates. Um, obviously, we've seen certain countries like Australia where we've seen rooftop solar really kick off. So we anticipate that the payback period for that to happen is around 12 to 13 years. And for solar at the moment, we're down as sort of low as eight, seven years if, for just a solar system. And we're really getting to the point where within the next two to three years, we'll see that being the case with solar plus storage. I mean, if this stabilizes like that, I mean, it, it, once it stays like that for a while, then some entrepreneurs are going to dive in here and start making this easy, an easy decision for any householder to do. You know, they'll put the funding package together with the equipment delivery and, and and a promise that you'll you know you'll only be paying for this installation for 11 12 years and then suddenly uh half of europe will just uh, dump their utilities you know then the only thing that's going to stop that is if um the utilities themselves become those entrepreneurs and um and present consumers with the opportunity to basically create and um, manage their own electricity. Um, yeah, you talk about, you say this has to be the case if, if these high prices stay, sort of stabilise, but I think it's also a case of customers being aware that a fossil fuel system and being reliant on imports and such uh, from any country has this risk of massive inflation in prices. So it's not, I don't think it prices necessarily have to stay at 450 euros per megawatt hour, but knowing that they can get that high in such a small period of time, I think will incentivise households to to look elsewhere and i mean i think that's why we're seeing such an inter interest in germany which is where obviously these um electricity prices are highest but we'll definitely see that trickle down into other markets like spain and italy where they're very similar very uh, similarly impacted by imports um and i think any european country that can sort of see homes sort of almost become self-sufficient through solar plus battery i think that's when it will become an absolute no-brainer in the next five to ten years I mean, we are we are talking about a massive uh, revolution in in energy markets. Then, mm. as soon as um, you take the control away from, I mean, in each country we've looked at, you've got to change a different regulation here or there to um, to make to make it possible for someone to just say, "I'm going to put a load of solar on my roof, I'm going to install a battery, and I'm going to detach from the grid, or I'm going to temper it." You know, I'm I'm going to stop being dependent on the grid. The um, at the moment, most regulation 
regulatory regimes allow utilities to block that, to limit that in some way. There's some kind of payment that they've got to make, which they complain about. We've seen the net metering rules starting to be attacked in the United States for, for much the same reason. But as soon as regulations start to change, and I think the European Union is a great place for it to happen, because the European Commission can make a directive that says you must make a law which makes this true within a couple of years. So I think, you know, we, we suddenly see a, a European Commission directive saying you must do this. Every country in Europe will, will uh, all the permitting, all the soft costs will evaporate and all the encouragement money will be in place. And I, I think uh, I was reading a piece this morning that says something like, I mean, a ludicrous amount of money uh, to, to, uh, to, to justify uh, all of this it's it's some billions, uh, 192 billion euros or something is going to have to be made available to, to bring this policy to fruition. Well, the only place that's ever likely to go ahead and do that, apart from China, because of its central management, is Europe, because effectively the European Commission is central management of, of the economy. So uh, I think once that happens, uh, we're going to see solar Oh, you see the whole shape of energy in in Europe change, and then other con- other parts of the world will model itself on it. We should do a forecast on this, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> should we move, move, move? I mean, we, we can stay with this for a long time, but I, I think that that's. I think I've just summed that up. I think it really is. There is a moment in time. It's been triggered by the Russian war. Uh, it's been coming for years. We've been. Uh, Europe has been saying no, no. We don't want solar from china oh maybe we do oh all right the southern states can have it oh maybe we won't maybe we we won't have a feeding tariff maybe we will suddenly the war has crystallized everyone's mind whatever the question was the answer is solar let's install as much of it as we can let's change the rules and i think i think it's um if i think that's going to happen and i think if they change the rules here and people start to see it working here then around the world, it all, I mean, Australia, the US, they, they're already accelerating rooftop solar plus plus storage. If Europe goes next, then everyone else will follow. So, so theoretically, do you think Europe will just not, it just won't put in its own manufacturing? Because theoretically, it just needs tariffs and subsidies, and it could have its own solar manufacturing base that would You can't do the tariff things because in the next seven or eight years, you're going to need to import lots and lots and lots of panels. Yeah, but what what if you do do it it without tariffs? Yeah, you can do it later on. I mean, what you you need to do is you need to stimulate manufacturing first and do that. But it's really simple to say uh, every commercial, every um, government owned or or local government owned building must have solar on it and they must use European panels. You can just about squeeze that past the WTO. Then you subsidize the manufacturing and you give them all these plum contracts. You give them a chance to flourish. You let them consolidate into three or four strong players and then they can start to hold their own. Once they're exporting and competing with China outside of Europe, then you can start suggesting, you can start looking at tariffs. Remember, tariffs are only fair if the other side is cheating. It shouldn't just be done as protectionism. It's only if they're selling their their uh, panels for less than cost. If they're making a healthy profit, so and they sell at the same price in Europe as they do back back in China and to the rest of Asia, why are we putting tariffs on them? That's that's surely illegal under WTO rules. I mean, it's not it's, it's not being fair. 
again, it comes back to my favourite piece of legislation. The carbon border tax will keep everyone honest. If you can't make it without creating carbon, you can't ship it here with creating carbon, then you'll be taxed and the tax will take the price up, not a tariff. And if everyone has a carbon border tax, then there's an incentive to make closer to home. Manufacturing will start to grow again, both in Europe, in America, and um, and not purely in parts of the world where people are poor. Some, something I'd like to mention briefly, it's not worth discussing much, I don't think, but Iran has issued a four gigawatt solar tender. And I don't think Iran has been reopened to Western investment. I think the sanctions are all still in place. I think this is, if I had to guess, it's just that the oil and gas prices are high. So now Iran has more of its own money to spend on this stuff to meet its own power shortages. So I think Harry wrote the Iran um, country profile, um, and which subscribers can read in um, in the atlas of uh, uh, the atlases we've produced. And in it, there was this conundrum you know, that they can't afford to make they can't make oil cheaply enough to make profit on it at, at, at the prices that were prevalent at the time. Well, since then, the prices have gone up. But they realised that they've had problems with their oil in the past, and now during a period of spare money, they get, they're going to invest now while they've got the money, while, while oil is a premium, and they'll... Um, and, 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 when they should have got into solar before, when they should have, everyone's gone, no, we've got the oil, let's not worry. Well, all those places are going to start to see oil disappearing or oil being too too expensive to make if they don't have their you know, friendly, fresh new refinery built by um, Americans or Europeans. So, yeah, I think I think that's an opportunistic move and I think it's a good move. And I think if they if they do it once, they'll do it twice. Yeah, I mean, it's what you want to see from all oil-heavy countries and all, all heavy companies as well. You want to see them spending their uh, sudden oil revenues um, that they're getting from this big sort of windfall. They, you want to see them investing in solar. So, I mean, I'm not sure whether or not Iran is also investing in new oil and gas, but a four gigawatt boost in solar is certainly something you, that we can't complain about. It's only it only works if you can't afford the latest refinery equipment. You can't build new refineries. You haven't got friendly relations uh, or money to pay for that. And and you know we go through the list: Mexico, Brazil, all fall into these categories. And um, and it's a good way out. It's a good way of get, hopping on the next energy bandwagon, especially if you happen to have hot weather, lots of sun, and a desert nearby um you know which um, which is cheap land hmm. i mean i was just struck by you know how sudden that is it's iran's is just renewables have basically been dead there it was less than 100 megawatts of wind and solar combined in the past couple of years or maybe about 100 megawatts and now suddenly it's it's back alive it's quite yeah, but if you put yourself in this situation you know and you look at the, the the efficiency of their oil operation and that's been getting stale for 20 years and they're, and they're less and less efficient and they're going we're not making as much profit on the oil and in fact they, they went through that period in early lockdown when they weren't making any money on the oil and they and they their economy was probably in a lot of trouble and and they're now seeing a high oil price and saying right we've got this money what should we do with it if you come from a period of, of being deprived you suddenly go right let's use this money properly this time i think i think that's um I, i'm guessing that's where it comes from but i think we'll see a lot more of it you know how long is oil going to be at this price well, I heard that the oil producers are going to deliberately try to keep supply low and prices high. Is that true? It's what they're doing. I mean, it's what OPEC Plus seems to be doing. Um, OPEC Plus, obviously, you've got good output from the leading countries within it, but the, the, the countries that are struggling to bring 
their production back online in the countries that have struggling economies anyway, countries like Algeria. So I think that's... It, it, people at OPEC Plus aren't going to increase their production quotas while they know that the oil price is so volatile and they know that it can, will cause it to reduce. I mean, you, you can see from from Russia that even when they're trading, I think it's on like 20%, 30% less oil, the elevated prices mean that they're, they're putting pretty much double the amount of revenues from oil as they have this, this time last year. So it is within their interest to keep the oil prices high. Double the revenue from, from less oil. And I think we've discussed the, the possibility of OPEC uh, members turning against each other, but that certainly isn't happening right now. It's something that's like still in the future. It's not happening right now, but I think it's definitely something that could still happen in the future. I think one the the turning point when we see this happen is when EVs take off and start selling more than fifty percent of new vehicles um, in markets. And that way, and, and at that point, we see a huge reduction in the amount of ICE vehicles on the road. And while we've already passed peak oil, we actually see oil demand really start to fall into decline. As soon as that happens, there'll be. People were thinking, well, I'm not going to shut off my oil facility if they're not going to shut off their oil facility. So production will stay the same, demand will fall, and then it will become a, a case of the, pr- uh, the price is falling, so people just trying to sell as much oil as they can while they can. So it will be almost a terminal decline of people just sort of scrambling to get rid of their oil assets. Um, and I think that's how we see the, the market collapsing. And I think, Peter, we've talked about it, so 2027 is when we expect to see that happen. I mean, oil can't... Oil is all priced on supply and demand and while we've got while we're trying to take a big chunk of of supply out of the system russia um obviously demand will be high it'll run high i think oil has peaked i think we can now ramp up oil that's not from russia to make up some of the shortfall of russia so globally we might make more oil but i don't know what russia's going to do with the oil it makes that was going to europe or and to america that's got to go somewhere else that you can't have that flooding a market and a cheap cheaper price eventually that has to get blocked and and then they stop making it but but apart from that temporary period where 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 some producers are increasing the amount of oil and on russia will find itself decreasing that there'll be an overlap when when perhaps we make more oil than the world needs but not all through the same market because russian russia is being pushed out i think we will we will find that about 2027 the the take-up rate i mean we did one t- a couple of tiny pieces in uh, in the back of the issue this week uh, uk electric vehicles a uh, total number of vehicles a percentage of vehicles that were electric and plug-in, 21 point something percent. In Germany, 24, that was in the UK, in Germany, 24 point something percent. Um, it's still on the march. And once that's 50% and 60%, and that, that happens in about 2027, if half of all the cars made are not using oil, it's just it doesn't take too many years at that rate until the bubble bursts. But it's 2027 is a long way off. Getting to there from here um, with with, with the, an intransigent Russia is is that's the hard point. So with oil being so much more expensive uh, and gas, uh, um, does that mean surely that means that hydrogen, green hydrogen's um, tipping point of cost efficiency has it has been moved forward by several years? Are we actually uh, have we reached it already now? Well, yeah, we have we have reached it already. Um, in the sense that green hydrogen at the moment is cheaper to produce than grey hydrogen, um, and that's that that's the case in quite in all markets where solar is sort of below. Um, so I think something like forty dollars per per megawatt, which is quite, which is 
a lot of countries at the point. Um, I think what it just points to is the fact that green hydrogen is the only sustainable option in terms of sustaining a hydrogen economy. Um, but yeah, it's it green hydrogen is the only hydrogen that we can see being talked about. But if we look at all of the deals that are coming in at the moment, while probably a year ago it was maybe a 70-30 split in terms of green to blue, it's now, I'd say, 95 to 5. Um, it, it seems to be only the oil and gas companies or the carbon capture companies that are trying to keep their business models alive that are proposing these projects that won't get built for blue hydrogen. So, yeah, I think, yeah, the green green hydrogen, if anything, is benefic- benefiting of, the, of this energy crisis. You wrote this article about advanced ionics hydrogen, which has a lot of technical stuff in it, and you're saying they want to reduce the cost of production by 30%, targeting uh, 85 cents per kilogram. So... If, but even before the reduction, it's it's below two dollars. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, for context, the, the price of grey hydrogen that we're used to is is around one dollar to one dollar fifty per kilogram. Um, hmm. So yeah, what um, Advanced Onyx is is targeting in terms of not uh, point eight, well, eighty five cents per kilogram. Yeah, obviously, is below what we've what we've experienced with grey hydrogen in the past. So yeah, it, it would completely disrupt the market. But so yeah, Advanced Onyx. Um, also, yeah, we should say way into that. It is a, a Wisconsin based startup that are trying to make a an electrolyzer basically to compete within the industrial space. So um, it's got a symbiotic electrolyzer, which it, it claims is not similar to uh, alkaline alkal electrolyzers, PEM electrolyzers, or solid oxide electrolyzers any, in any way, really. Um, and it, yeah, it's this whole sort of new, new type of electrolyzer, which will use heat basically to offset part of the energy requirement to create the hydrogen. So using the heat, waste heat from processes like steel making, cement making, Processes that are looking actually to use hydrogen to decarbonize themselves, um, use their waste heat can uh, replace around forty percent of the energy requirement to make to make hydrogen. So around only thirty five kilowatt hours would be needed to produce one kilogram of hydrogen, down from around fifty uh, kilowatt hours that we've we've been used to within traditional electrolyzers. Um, so obviously, with falling cost of electricity down to maybe twenty dollars per megawatt hour for solar, then we could expect to see yeah prices of around eighty five cents per kilogram. And you've you've got a you've got a great explainer in this article about the three main types of electrolysis, PEM and AEM and solid oxide. Yeah, I think most of our customers understand the difference. Well, I'll, I'll find it very interesting. Yeah, so that, that's that's obviously available in the PDF version of of the um, of the issue for any any readers that the one that explainer. Um, I imagine at some point in the future we'll be releasing that as yes, yeah, sort of more of an educational piece. But yeah, that that's there for anyone that needs it. Um, the the different obviously advanced onyx haven't been that clear on on the chemistry of their their products so far. I mean they were they were a stealth company until maybe two weeks ago. So um, again they're not being too upfront with what they're with what they're producing. What they've basically said is that because their uh, electrolyzer operates at lower temperatures than solid oxide electrolyzers, they can use uh, cheaper and more ready, readily available materials like stainless steel for the actual electrolyzer stack, which will make it a lot cheaper and a lot uh, easier to sort of mass produce than solid oxide electrolyzers, um, which will obviously give it a huge advantage in um, targeting that industrial space that it clearly will be targeting as it's high temperatures. We've mentioned in the past that less than 50% of industrial heat is used effectively. And that so if you've got any kind of large scale industrial process that's given off heat, um, it's a lot of effort to ship that heat to, say, a district heating system to a nearby town. Uh, whereas if you can shift it into a process like electrolysis and, and it's currently 
it's almost you're having to take the heat away from the transaction. You're not you're not reusing it. You, it the cost of reusing it is too expensive. And someone says, "Oh, I'll put electro electrolysis electrolyzer here, and I can use that heat. It's free energy." It, and and it's there's this is a, has been a problem for the last 20 30 years there's lots of free energy coming off industrial processes and and that's what the, the genius is here let's pick a, a temperature uh, point that we can reach let's design a process which uses that temperature level uh, and it's much lower than oxide electrolyzers and um you know the difference is what 200 degrees to compare to 700 degrees it's a much much lower point so so they've done a great job um, and it's going to have tr- trouble other people catching up. I mean, I believe it is what I'm saying. I believe it, and I believe that the idea will take off. Yeah, and, we, and we've we've talked about ideas in the past of using heat to um, of, well, on for a technical set perspective, we've talked we've looked at concepts in the past where uh, researchers have used heat for the oxygen evolution reaction of electrolysis, which means that more electricity can be used for the hydrogen evolution reaction within electrolysis. So that it could well be what's happening here um, for, uh, for a technical perspective. It's interesting, a consulting client asked us to uh, come up with a plan uh, and they were experts in heat and in the end didn't take us up on our offer. And this is exactly what we would have been telling them. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, um, I think the industrial space really is sort of confused at the moment about how to decarbonize, how to um, integrate itself within this hydrogen economy. And I think this this offers a really good, as Advanced Olympics have called it, a symbiotic way involving themselves within it, because obviously they're involving themselves in both the production and the use of green hydrogen there as well. So any, I mean, even if you're, if you're producing too little, then you can import from maybe your neighbours in, in an industrial cluster, or if you're producing too much, you can export it to them. So it, it's, it's a win-win, really. I mean, if we're looking at the timeline as well, uh, it's probably worth mentioning that Advanced Science are looking to take start taking commercial orders from 2024, put their first gigafactory maybe from 2030. Uh, I think their first shipments will be around five years before that. It needs to be needs to be sooner than that, yeah. But if, if shipments are in 2025 and this product is as successful as we imagine it could be, then yeah, 2027, 2028 is when we can imagine this first gigafactory. I can see some private equity people turning up at their door saying, can you do it quicker? Here's, mu- here's loads of money. They, they seem to be quite conservative with their assumptions. I mean, they're saying low-cost solar at around $20 per megawatt hour. And if they're targeting... Um, certain economies, and that's that's already the case. So they're not looking at they're not looking at speculative figures. I think if the, if the technology works, then um, it it should be fairly straightforward to commercialise. I'm kind of want to hijack the podcast for a second now and just take us slightly off off um, uh, beat here because we were talking about the oil, oil the oil industry not wanting to drop the price of oil and not wanting to make more oil not wanting to go back to production levels of uh, 2019 2017 and i was listening to jennifer granholm uh, uh, talk to a con- congressional panel uh, you know to justify her policy and how it, it, it they, she, they were trying to blame the biden administration for um for the increased cost of fuel and um and she very reservedly referred to uh, the oil companies having to satisfy fiscal discipline i.e keep us rich make us lots of money and uh, so that the money is flowing uh, from the uh, poor person who can't afford to eat uh, or heat their own, have to choose between them, into the coffers of the oil companies. Uh, and their shareholders are saying, great, and we want that money to come to us, either when you buy back shares or give dividends. In this environment, I can't see why we're not taxing 
fossil fuel companies with a windfall tax. And we've never really had a policy on that. I can see the wind of change blowing through this idea. You know, in the, uh, we, we, we've heard the UK's view, oh, we don't want to frighten investors away. We're, we're you know, now post-Brexit. But I really think that it's a fairly disgusting society that takes the poorest people, strangles more money out of them, and then gives it to the richest people, the shareholders in the oil companies. Uh, and I, I think we're going to see a, a wind of change on this idea of there being a windfall tax on oil. Discuss. I probably sit on the other side of the fence to you, Peter, in this, in this debate, I think. While I completely understand the idea of a windfall tax, I think that obviously it, it's it's a very popular policy, taking from the rich and giving to the poor, this sort of Robin Hood idea. When you look at the amount of money that will be raised from a sudden windfall tax, uh, while it would alleviate customer bills for maybe six months a year, I don't think it's a sustainable option in a, a fossil fuel-heavy system. I think you, you need to come up with a way of encouraging the oil majors to actually transform rather than just keep paying out to their shareholders because that's what they oh, do. Oh, yeah, no, no, I'm not. No, I, I agree with that part. And I've seen you, you've written that in a few pieces, which basically says if you've invested money in renewable energy to a certain percentage, um, you should be allowed to uh, escape this windfall tax. And, it, and that... And that could be a moving target. It shouldn't be a windfall tax. It should be a tax. It should. I mean, there's no, there are no rules about taxation. Uh, in in a declining economy, the the oil economy, we should be getting as much money of that profit away from shareholders into renewable energy um, to to rapidly uh, to accelerate the transition. And and you have said that in the past. You've said if they've shown good citizenry and they've they they've invested in renewables to a certain extent, then they should be uh, they shouldn't be punished for that. That's fine. But I think we should see a, a permanent regime of change of taxation where fuels. Are I think yeah. I think you're right. I think basically, if you've um, if you just suddenly tax with a windfall tax as well, the in- the, the oil companies aren't going to change what they're going to do. They're just going to, because they're so obsessed with their shareholders, they're just going to simply pay back their shareholders at a slower rate. So they won't shift renewables as quickly. But the thing that they, we need to do is change the taxation system. So, and not rather than sort of maybe percentage of renewables investment, because that's dubious in many ways. I mean, there'll always be ways that they can point to gas projects as sustainable or nuclear projects as sustainable. But it needs to be a really firm metric on which they're taxed. And it makes so much sense if that's just a straight up carbon tax on scope one, scope two and scope three emissions. Um, if you're, if the oil company is having to pay a tax for the emissions on the oil that they're selling, if that, even if that means that they can have to increase the price of oil, it will, firstly, that will drive people to shift towards electric vehicles. Obviously it won't do anything to address the cost of living, but if you put a price cap on, on oil as well, which we have in the UK, obviously we're against in many senses, but, it will mean that they suffer from that, and they actually they lose margins on their oil. And that taxation could be could be used for two things. It could be used for um, uh, to drive a renewables fund, and it could be used to offset um, poor people's um, fuel bills. Yeah, exactly. I think, and I think it, that's how it, it has to be a direct tax on even the sale of fossil fuels. I think that's potentially something that needs to be done. But obviously, you don't want to see that increase the price to customers. 
No, you can't because those yellow jackets that, that came out in in France almost almost toppled Macron, and that was purely because of, of uh, a planned tax that France had already agreed on uh, to put on fuel and to spend the money uh, elsewhere in the economy. And that plan had been known about for years, but once those yellow jackets hit the street, that was it. They were just. I think maybe the times have changed um, post post Ukraine war. Yeah, you might be right. I think in, in implementing something that doesn't increase the price of fossil fuels to the customer or energy to the customer, more importantly, is uh, is very difficult. But I think rather than a windfall tax, I think it needs to be something more sustainable. I think in, um, I think improving improving the scope of carbon taxation is probably the way to do it. So I, I believe I believe we're going to start to see somebody break cover here and come up with. Uh, an enlightened form of taxation uh, and there's no reason why fossil fuels can't be singled out for a different tax regime initially in a, in a, in one part of the world and then globally and and carbon tax alone is just pushing the problem onto the customer and there must be a way of doing it without pushing too much of the problem onto the customer and and use it's because it's just obscene the amount of money that's being made because Russia started a war. Yeah, exactly. I think another thing that we could really do is is tax exploration much more, much more highly as well because um, that's I think obviously there's an argument that we've got the oil that from the assets that we've already already discovered, but I think taxing new ex- exploration I think should be something that's really encouraged um, because I think that's that's where suddenly we see we see. Like a lot of oil in the market that's suddenly being sold for next to nothing. Um, and actually- so there's a piece in the in the Guardian this morning that's that's based on uh, something about to be published in the journal Energy Policy. It's talking about 195 projects which they're calling carbon bombs, uh, giant oil and gas projects. A lot of it is all to do with fracking, um, which will, over their lifetime, new projects emit 640 billion tonnes of CO2 and and smash the, the 1.5 centigrade uh, carbon budget. And that's purely because of the frenzy around the higher oil price. Once, If that becomes widely understood and public, I think it's being published next week and The Guardian's just had a sniff of it, that's, that's just cynically saying we don't care about the world. We just want to make more money, more and more. And look, now the price of oil is where it should be. We can just open up lots of new projects and we can get them guaranteed for 25 years. And we don't care if that kills the planet off. If that is really going to come to light and people's hatred of the oil companies is already considerable, it's going to go off the charts. I know we didn't cover that in our issue. (laughs) Anyway, it just leaves us with something to think about. Um, Perhaps we can ask Simon what he noticed in the issue. Well, Peter, it's about uh, eco-terrorists. So in our section uh, about the world of renewables this week at our website, rethinkresearch.biz/energy, uh, I read this funny piece about um, some eco-terrorists in the town of Brighton, or maybe city of Brighton in England, letting down tyres on SUV owners and um, putting a, uh, a a fly on the windscreen about their the gas guzzlers uh, are, are doing damage to to the climate, and it got me thinking about tires. Uh, and I, I looked up that uh, we throw away a billion and a half tires every year, and I'm just thinking, what what 
is that an opportunity or you know some of them do get recycled but some of them can be used as a fuel okay so so if you it's illegal to set fire to a tire because Correct. the um the pollutants it gives off are excessive and and they are and there's an excessive amount of carbon in them as well not just carbon but all sorts of things the, the the group you're talking about by the way call themselves tire extinguishers and that that's um and, and it's just it's just something i think that you know the, the uk uh public has a a way of taking an idea like that and can you imagine it you know every time you come back to your suv you, you <laughs> four tires are flat and you've got no way of nice pumping them. Yeah. you know i don't know about you but um, every time i'm bullied off the road by a massive suv driven by a single person you're thinking what's that tank doing on the roads using up all that or all that oil and creating all that pollution to drive one person about and it always makes me my blood boil so i think i think we that we're going to see that take off um i don't know uh however about the subject of tires whether they could be made from i don't know reclaimed co2 from uh, from carbon capture yeah well there isn't any so um i i don't know if you could uh, make them of something else which doesn't uh, harry have you come across any uh no to be honest um i think the best thing that we can do rather than use i think obviously if you use them for fuel that's emissions that we don't we don't want so it's got to be a case of recycling the tiles the tires can be recycled you can recycle the rubber from them so i think it has to be a case of that simon's perspective but i think i think you're right peter i think this will catch on i think it will be i think people like extinction rebellion, extinction rebellion will look at this and think this is an easy thing we can do so suddenly you'll see people running around with their faces covered letting down the tires of suvs and i think if you're listening to this podcast now and you're of a mischievous frame of mind, go and net down an SUV's tires. Um, you know, and, and, you... and you, know, you, you can reprint the flyer off the internet. Uh, you go to tire extinguishers, spelt the UK way, T-Y-R-E, and, um, and let's uh, see if we don't have a wave of civil disobedience. They must okay. really annoy you. <laughs> However, yeah, so I'll probably have a load of people at my door SUV, angry SUV drivers. The rest of the stories in the issue are there to be seen. It's on rethinkresearch.biz. You click on uh, energy uh, and you go to weekly analysis and that's free to read. The jewels of research that we deliver are not free and they're advertised down each story and you can see that by clicking on forecasts and data and uh, we, we give you a few free items to read and you don't have to pay very much $4,600 to become a customer. That's the end of the podcast for this week and we'll be talking to you again next week um, and that's um, goodbye for now.